Last week, a battle of wits. It was our quarterly game show for the 24th consecutive quarter, six years of you playing along against my talented guest stars as we all think smarter about the values of public companies. That was the Market Cap Game Show. And the week before, review of Palooza, looking back at two past five-stock samplers, learning lessons from the winners, and yeah, unfortunately, the losers too. And the week before that, well, it was unleashing AI's power for good with our new friend Mahan Tavakoli in several ways, actually. It was AI month on this podcast. So, a game show reviewing lessons from 10 stock picks and a deep dive into artificial intelligence. June 2023 was a motley month. Now, the way we close out every month on this podcast is even more motley than that. Like the jester's garments of yore, it will be a ragtag patchwork quilt of an episode because this week, it's your mailbag. Emily Flippin will join me to talk about getting started investing. Robert Brokamp will join me to talk about getting finished investing, thinking here of retirement investing, and other sundry delights. Your best questions, our best answers. Mailbag, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy end of June. It has been a motley month. It's been an AI month. You know, I always feel some compulsion to justify making sure you heard each of the episodes of a given month as we hit the end of that month. So, as I think back through the three that have preceded this one, I think of, well, first of all, if you didn't get to hear Mahan Tavakoli talk about artificial intelligence in a way that is understandable to all. Mahan is very well spoken, very well studied, but speaks the lingua franca, AI for the rest of us. And I think that you you really deserve to hear more about our future. And I think that that's exactly what Mahan and I did a few weeks ago, speaking to the future we're all going to live together in and through. And it's going to be good. It's going to be much better than I think most people think. So, there's a great reason to listen to the first week's episode for this podcast. The second week was a review of Palooza. And what I want to say about any review of Palooza, where we go back and revisit past stock picks, see how they've done, I think the key thing about review of Paloozas is you get to learn lessons. Because, of course, with every winning stock pick and every losing stock pick that I make or you make, we have an opportunity to learn lessons. But in particular, you're learning lessons over the right time periods. So, when we go back one, two, or three years later and review what's happened to well-known stocks, for example, Peloton, go back and revisit, we're learning it over the right time frame. I feel as if most people in society, especially those who tend to watch cable TV or follow the markets with more avidity than I believe they deserve, although I'll never gainsay anybody loving following the stock market, but I think most people learn lessons over the wrong time periods. They're learning lessons over short time periods. They're determining how they're going to act based on some short-term thing that happened. And so, I think the beauty of that Review of Palooza episode is we get to explore things over the right time periods. I think learn better lessons. And then, finally, of course, a reason to listen to any market cap game show is to get to play along with your partner, your spouse, your kids, or, in this case, with Bill Mann and Jim Mueller, my talented guests. But it's an opportunity for us to play a game together. We do that four times a year on this show. It's always a highlight for me. I already have September 23rd circled on my calendar, because that's the next Market Cap Game Show. But it's still fresh enough in our minds. If you missed it last week, last week's Market Cap Game Show is there for you and your summer enjoyment. All right. Well, we're about to start July, but I want to give a heads up toward August. Every year on our podcast, Rule Breaker Investing does authors in August. And I've had comments in the past, things like, Hey, Dave, it's great that you're having these great authors and books on in August, but why don't you tell us in June who's coming on so I could read a book or two ahead of time and especially further enjoy the interview for that reason. So, at the end of this week's episode, just for the fun of it, I've parked our announcement of one of our authors in August. So, anybody with some free reading time, again, perhaps at the beach this summer, you'll be able to read ahead. I look forward to sharing that with you as a little Easter egg at the end of this week's show. But without further ado, let's get into some hot takes from Twitter, June 2023. 
I'll just highlight three this month. The first is from Frank Yuriyami. Frank, you are at I-M-A-Y-R-I-F. Tricky, you're spelling your name with first initial backwards as your Twitter handle. Frank, you were talking about Peloton reacting to our Review of Palooza episode. You said, I like the reference to the brand quotient. Did I get that right? Re Peloton. Frank adds, I agree it's well north of one. We'll talk about what he means about that in a second. In my opinion, he goes on to add smart backing, strong consumer appeal, overvalued, passes the snap test for three plus million people, turnaround in a strong brand that I use in quotes. Frank concludes, equals ad for me, as in he's Sounds like you're buying some or some more of the stock. See you in a year on it with a smiley emoji. Now, Frank is referring to our brief discussion of Peloton and me wondering aloud, is it one of those companies where it's gotten so cheap at a market cap of $2.5 billion that it's not that different from probably the brand value it might be able to garner in a buyout from somebody else. Certainly not a prediction from me or from Frank that this company would get bought out. But as you start thinking about where is it trading today and what are some of the values of its intangibles, that's kind of what I sometimes we call the brand quotient, or we think about that ratio of a company's brand value and where its market cap is. And I always love companies with strong brands that seem as if that's a lot of the value of their whole market cap. Now, of course, Peloton has a lot of struggles. It has an excellent turnaround CEO, I think, but it struggles to make money. So, it's by no means a home run stock here below $8 a share. But at least in the minds of one listener and fellow Fool Frank, you're saying, it passes your brand quotient test. So, thank you for that tweet. And then just two other hot takes from Twitter, and both come from Matt Hard at 307 Fool, both on different topics, both fun. Thank you, Matt. The first reacting to our market cap game show last week, Matt, you tweeted, I love the market cap game show this week. By the end, it struck me that it was the human. TMF Otter, referring to Bill Mann, the human who was the true tie to Artificial Intelligence Month. Bill proved to be his own large language model of company information. Matt concludes here, Bill GPT 1.0 put on a very impressive performance. Bravo. You know, that was the first time I've had Bill on the Market Cap Game Show. It definitely won't be the last. And what an enjoyable friend and co-conspirator toward foolishness for Lo, these couple of decades, but also what a knowledgeable and fun person to have a conversation with, or in this case, play a game with. So, thank you for recognizing Bill, Matt. And earlier in the month, Matt, you were reflecting on our Review of Palooza episode this way. You said it's Wednesday, which means there's a new Rule Breaker podcast episode. I always love five stock sampler reviews, but I wasn't expecting at Investing Nick, that would be my guest Nick Seipel, and at David G. Fool to remind me of. Hand updating rosters back in the day with EA Sports's NCAA football game. Awesome work. Well, I had a fun conversation. It wasn't just about stocks with Nick, but of course we talked sports some too and video games. And yes, that those days of NCAA football being amateur and therefore electronic arts being forced to pull names from uniforms, you still got to play the video game with, let's say, your Alabama Crimson Tide if you wanted to, but all of the jerseys just had numbers on them. Real fanatics like me and Nick and apparently Matt as well would go in and edit the players so you could add back their names and play your college football game with the names of the actual players. Of course, now in the so-called NIL era, the name, image, and likeness, which now can earn money for names, images, and likenesses that garner enough attention, whether we're talking about college football, college basketball, presumably other sports too, in this new NIL era. I think EA Sports is coming back with its games with the names on the jerseys. Matt Hart, thank you for your contributions. All right, well, six mailbag points for you this week. Let's get started with mailbag item number one. This one comes from Matt Cohen. Matt, thanks for writing in. Thanks for a little bit of a blast from the past here. Greetings, David. I noticed an interesting observation recently. On September 21, 2007, you recommended Royal Caribbean Cruise Line, ticker symbol RCL, in Stock Advisor, and then you issued a sell decision for the stock about three months after the great financial crisis of 2008. In other words, that was a shorter-term recommendation of mine, one that lost money, and I basically said, let's exit. 
Anyway, Matt goes on, one of the researchers on the Stock Advisor team recently looked up the figures for me. If you had never sold RCL, Royal Caribbean Cruise Line, in Stock Advisor, the stock would have delivered a total return of 147%, compared to a total return of 275% from the S&P 500 over the same time period. So, just to review, this was again September 2007. So, if you just kept holding these last 16 years, you slightly more than doubled your money in Royal Caribbean, but you would have almost tripled your money just in an index fund over that time. So, Matt concludes thus, RCL would have provided a relatively modest gain, but been an underperformer. While your reasons for selling RCL were very understandable at the time, does it now look and feel to you like it was a mistake? to sell RCL in Stock Advisor when you did? And if so, where does that rank among all the investing mistakes you've made, either for yourself or on behalf of Motley Fool subscribers? Best regards, Matt Cohen." Well, you asked two questions there, Matt. The first is, do I feel like it was a mistake to sell Royal Caribbean in Stock Advisor when I did? And I'm going to say, no, I don't. Um, I basically am playing the long game. It's rare for me to recommend a stock and exit after a year or two. Usually, I try to hold, as many know, for at least a decade or two. I think, in part, it was the really bad financial conditions that we'll remember from the Great Recession. And I just didn't like the dynamics for some of the companies in our portfolio, and Stock Advisor at the time, and Royal Caribbean, a company I've enjoyed as a customer, um, a company I admire in many ways was one that just didn't feel like a great pick. Now, I wasn't probably aware of what was going to happen in the next 15 years or so, but now looking backward, and thank you, because you know I love looking backward and learning, I'm glad to know, I guess, that this company has underperformed the S&P 500 by over 100 percentage points since 2007. So, I would emphatically say, I don't feel like that was a mistake. I do like to own up to my mistakes. and. I talk a lot about them on this podcast and have over the years. I don't think that was one of them. And so, the answer to your second question, where does it rank among all of the investing mistakes I've made, either for myself or on behalf of Motley Fool subscribers? I'm going to say somewhere down there in the 3000s or so. I don't think it's a top 10 mistake. I don't think it's a top 100. I don't really think that one was a mistake. Although, I do wish good things for most for-profit companies, especially those bringing joy to the world. I think Royal Caribbean, is one of them. Thank you for writing in Matt Cohen. All right, rule breaker investing mailbag item number two. This one comes from Eric Head writing in for logical reasons, as will shortly become clear from Knoxville, Tennessee. David, I just listened to your review of Palooza episode and the discussion with Nick Seipel centered on the changes in college sports conferences. For example, North Carolina's rumored move at the time to the SEC. Etc. Those rumors continue. By the way, I couldn't help, Eric Head writes, but think of an earlier time, 91 years ago. Some time ago, I was researching the local Knoxville newspapers from the early 1930s for something I was working on. I read an opinion piece in the local paper lamenting the breakup of the old Southern League, a breakaway group that left to form the Southeastern Conference. What remained formed the foundation then for what later became the ACC. The columnist was lamenting the loss of the rivalry. Again, this is the 1930s columnist Eric is referencing. The columnist was lamenting the loss of the rivalry between Tennessee and North Carolina and Duke. Who today recalls, Eric writes, that there was ever such a rivalry between these schools? I think this is worthwhile to note that despite the changes now underway in the college sports affiliation universe, the disruption will eventually be forgotten and future fans of the various schools will have adapted to the new rivalries that will ensue. For the record, I work across the street in downtown Knoxville from the Farragut Hotel, site of the Southern Conference meeting in 1932 and birthplace of the new Southeastern Conference. Always enjoy your podcast. Thanks for doing it. Eric Head, Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, Eric, I really appreciate that exploration of sports history. It was a century ago, just about, wasn't it, when these same conversations were happening. I did go back and check it. The Southern Conference 
The original charter members of the Southern Conference were Alabama, Auburn, Clemson, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Kentucky, Maryland, Mississippi State, North Carolina, North Carolina State, Tennessee, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Washington and Lee. Now, there were some later additions. You mentioned Duke, which showed up in 1929. So, yeah, that was the Southern Conference back then. By the way, the SOCON still going today. It is, I see here on Wikipedia, the fifth oldest major college athletic conference in the United States today. Certainly many smaller schools, schools like the Citadel or UNC Greensboro, VMI, Virginia Military Institute, Wofford, all examples of SOCON schools. So, yeah, I think it's worth remembering that these things have constantly changed over time. And as college sports continues to evolve, it's very likely that your kids and mine or their kids won't even remember some of the things that we grew up with and took for granted in terms of the traditions of the schools and the rivalries that they enjoyed in what end up becoming moribund later on, moribund sports conferences. So, things, they are a-changing. Certainly, that's true of college sports today. We talked some about that this month on the podcast. Eric, I really loved your note and the historical flavor that you brought. Full on, my friend. All right, on to mailbag item number three. This one from longtime, somewhat frequent, increasingly frequent writer and always appreciated correspondent Dave Gek, I was delighted, says Dave, to hear my name mentioned and read in the recent mailbag. That was last month's mailbag. I listened to it yesterday, Dave writes, riding the train from Warsaw to Budapest. One thing I apparently did not make clear was what I understood Jeff Fisher to state, with which, Dave says, I would probably agree. That is, I did not start with $10,000, but I was still able to go much higher than the $10,000 one-shot influx would have given by saving early, often, and in ever-increasing amounts. I'm going to pause it right there. Regular listeners will know that there was a little bit of a debate about saying things like, if you had started with $10,000 in 1970, by the year 2020, 50 years later, you would have made this much in the stock market. And Dave had a bone or two to pick with this idea, because sometimes it sounds cavalier in today's dollars to say, if you'd had $10,000 in 1970, that sounds like not as much money in 2020 than it did in 1970. So, Dave, having a little bit of fun with Jeff in that regard. But anyway, Dave continues on, coupled with compounding, we were able to exceed that amount with the benefit of compounding. So, just let Jeff know, I love him. I understand his point was valid. My pickiness Dave concludes this paragraph is both a blessing and a curse. Now, Jeff Fisher, not in the offices today here on a summer day, but Jeff did take the time to give a one-paragraph written statement, which I will share back through this podcast. This is not, of course, just for Dave. This is for you, dear listener. Dave Gack unlocked the secret. Jeff sent me this note earlier today. Dave Gack unlocked the secret to using the stock market as a savings vehicle and is enjoying the rewards. We, of course, love that. That, in short, Jeff writes, is what The Motley Fool has been about since its start in 1993. Simply putting your regular savings, however small, into the stock market, perhaps starting with the S&P 500, perhaps only ever buying into that benchmark, for many of us anyway, through the many low-cost vehicles available, is a grand, simple way to win as an investor. Just a few days ago, Jeff references Fool writer Trevor Genowine, who wrote an article about this. So, this is out just this week on our site. You can definitely Google it and find it. Trevor shows that investing $50 per week in an S&P 500 ETF since 1993 turned that small commitment into $432,500 in value today. Yes, that $50 per week, grand total $78,000 invested over 30 years, is now worth more than $432,000. Jeff goes on, you might not even miss that $50 per week, so save it and invest it automatically. If you can save and invest more, so much the better. So, gratitude, Jeff concludes, to Dave Geck from all of us for reminding us that investing one lump sum decades ago isn't the best way to think about investing, and it can make it seem daunting. We should all aim to save and invest any 
small amount regularly. Thank you for writing, Dave. Thanks to Trevor for the article on Fool.com. Jeff says, thanks for the love, Dave, from one fool to another. So I really appreciate that Dave's poking back at us. And Jeff, what a great comment. The importance of just regularly investing. Yes, we love the lump sum stories of the $10,000 40 years ago, but how about just $50 a week over the last 30 years? That ain't bad. Well, I see Emily Flippin is here in our studios. Before I welcome Emily to the microphone for mailbag item number four, I will just add in Dave Geck's final paragraph of his note to me to raise a smile among some and perhaps anger among a precious few. I will share Dave's last paragraph. On a side note, he wrote, While eating lunch today in a Hungarian restaurant, I saw a steel sign on the wall that said, Minnesota Twins and Budweiser. I immediately thought of you. You were the only fan of the Twins I know of, although I'm sure the numbers are in the Tens of thousands. Well, maybe not not that many every day, Dave says. I think it's more than that, Dave. But anyway, it made me reflect that although I have been all over the world, I still have four states I have not visited. Minnesota, North Dakota, Oregon, and Nebraska. I'm pretty sure I landed at the Omaha airport one time. Can't imagine why. But I don't count that in states I visited. Maybe I will have to go to a Berkshire meeting. And then a Twins game. And I can see myself visiting Oregon as there are things there that I would like to experience. But, he concludes, North Dakota. Maybe I'll put it in my will that I want to be buried there. Can't think of another reason to go. Well, Dave, I think that you have angered a few people listening to us this week. But I suspect you may have made others laugh. I sure did when you said, maybe I'll put it in my will that I want to be buried there. Well, I hope that doesn't happen for a long time. Dave, thank you for writing in. Thank you as well, Jeff Fisher. All right, on to Rule Breaker mailbag item number four. Emily, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good to be here. Thank you. Give me a snapshot of some summer moment, good, bad, or neutral, before we get started here. Yeah, my summers, you know, whenever I think about quintessential summer growing up in Texas, it was always 4 p.m., a million degrees outside, you know, laying out on my back porch, nothing to do. And for a lot of people, that probably sounds wonderful. In my world, I was absolutely miserable. I'm a morning person. Those Texas summer mornings, always best. But whenever I think about the summer, I don't know why those those kind of sad memories come to me, but they do. How would you characterize the greater Washington, D.C. area summer thus far? Um muggy is maybe the word I would use. We've had an unusual, unseasonable amount of rain, even as we're sitting here taping today's episode. Uh, we're watching storms yeah. roll in. Yeah, it's big, dark. It's 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 not just dark right there. I would say it's, it's black, some of those clouds. So I love that weather, though. I'm looking forward to it. It is fun. And I know it happens in Texas. It also happens in Washington, D.C. And it has a lot this summer. Emily, great to have you. And I wanted to share this next item with you. Let's do this. Brett Wyman, thank you. Hi, David. One of your most well-known lines is, make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. Well, thank you, Brett. You nailed it. Over the past few years, Brett writes, I've used this as a guideline as I've built out my portfolio. As a 22-year-old investor, one of the things I've struggled with in building my portfolio is that I have a very long time horizon. And Brett writes 10 plus years. I would add maybe 10 plus decades, by the way, Emily, because you young people, the, the longevity you might produce is something remarkable. So I absolutely appreciate that 10 plus years is way more than most 22 year olds think. But Brett, I think you're thinking about that plus. At least I see a big plus there, Emily. Oh, I do too. And hopefully I have that as well. Hopefully there's some pluses ahead of me. Yeah, Emily, how old are you again? Well, I like to think in my head I'm still 22, although I think I've aged up since then. I'm 28, David. <laughs> okay, that still counts. Yet, Brad continues, I am at an age where I have a rapidly changing worldview. Brad doesn't say much about what that is in this note. We don't need to speculate about that, but I do find myself curious about that. But we can't ask him that because he didn't speak to it. He goes on, though. The companies that reflected my best vision for our future two years ago are different than those today and are likely different than those a few years from now. Do you have any advice for balancing these competing demands between having my portfolio reflect my current best vision for our future and the reality that this vision is constantly changing? 
Uh, this is such a beautifully difficult question. I love it. it. It's caused me to kind of think to myself about my own portfolio, my own worldviews. And I have to applaud just the perspective that worldviews can change. That That's a level of cognitive flexibility that is rare with humans. So I absolutely love the fact that, Brett, you're, you're thinking about this and wondering about the world and what's happening around you and how that can reflect itself in your portfolio. But you're right in the sense that if we are overly flexible, right, it can lead to turnover in businesses. So, you know, the way that I approach this question in my own portfolio is just being as flexible with the companies that I'm invested in as I am with myself and the world around me, which is to say, allow your companies to change over time too. And the businesses that you bought two years ago, while maybe they're not the same businesses that you know reflect the exact world you imagined, give them room to grow into that world as well. Um, maybe the perspective I would use is a business like Tesla, which I know can be controversial for a number of reasons. But if your worldview, if you're a Tesla shareholder, and when you bought shares of Tesla, you believed the world was moving towards the electrification of vehicles. And now your perspective is, maybe that's not the case. For whatever reason, you think it's going to be corn-powered or gas-powered, doesn't matter. For some reason, electric Wait, I'm vehicles, sorry, Emily, you okay. think things could be corn-powered? Are you serious? I, I think I think there is, can't you create fuel from corn? Am I crazy? I, I don't think so. It's just, I, I, I'm having a hard well, time seeing this, like, going big. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of corn in this country. I really didn't mean to distract you from the channel that you were... The, the the rails that you're on right now, Emily. Keep going. No, it's, I was just it's you got me thinking about corn fine. in ways I hadn't been before you said that. Well, it could still be corn, but let, maybe hydrogen's a better example. <laughs> maybe hydrogen more likely to be a fuel for our vehicles over the long term. Uh, but let's say that for whatever reason, it's not electric vehicles. That's not your best vision for our future anymore. I think you can reflect on your ownership of Tesla and that think to yourself, well. That changes things for me. And my thesis, the reasons why I bought Tesla, they're no longer my best vision for the world. And maybe that causes you to sell your shares of Tesla and reinvest in corn or reinvest in hydrogen or whatever it is that you think is that future. But if you're looking at Tesla and you still believe in electric vehicles, but now your best vision for the world is, well, I don't know if Tesla's going to be the best car maker. I don't know if Elon Musk is going to be the best leader. I'm not sure if I would use that as a reason to change your allocations. Mm. Give Tesla room to change. Give Tesla room to grow. Their competitive positioning, their leadership, whatever it is that is maybe hanging you up at the moment, give them that flexibility. And that's just one example. It's an easy example because that has you know the long-term tailwind of electric vehicles. But you can apply that to any number of companies. You know, compare your original thesis for buying versus what that world looks like in your imagination a decade from today. Yeah, like let's say Amazon.com. That one's changed a little bit since it was Earth's biggest bookseller. But I'm also thinking more recently, Emily, a company like Facebook. A lot of people thought about Facebook one way, whether they were kids who were like, my friends are on Facebook, my parents aren't, or or maybe then the parents, we're all on Facebook, our kids aren't, or maybe in recent years, it's not even called Facebook anymore, it's now Meta Platforms, and there's some identity crisis baked in there, and there was some decline in the stock baked in there, and yet, just checking it, Meta is an absolute monster here in the first six months of 2023. So. Yes, these companies themselves really morph. And I really like that point you're making, Emily, which is doesn't mean you have to sell. And maybe there's a little bit of a grace period. Like maybe Brett changes his mind. And I love that you underlined that he does change his mind because that's really psychologically good, unless you're doing it too frequently. But maybe you give yourself a grace period of like waiting a year or two to see if you really think that change is in and then perhaps reallocate. But don't do so too quickly. I, I love that. And I will say, if I had to choose between being overly rigid with my worldview and my businesses and overly flexible, I would always choose overly flexible. It's, in my opinion, much harder for humans to reflect on themselves and implement change, especially as we get older. And um, just instilling that as part of your investing process is so incredible. But I agree. That is our businesses are flexible too, and they will change and iterate over time. So the problems that plagued Meta or Facebook when somebody made their initial investment is probably very different than the problems that plague the business today. But fundamentally, I think Meta or Facebook is going to be a business that capitalizes upon 
humans, our data, and our engagement. It's always been like that. And if your best worldview no longer sees that as part of its future, then maybe that's a reason to change your investment philosophy on Meta. But if you're looking and you're like, I'm not sure about the metaverse right now, well, give Meta some time, right? We don't know exactly where they'll be at 10 plus years from now. Um, but that's kind of how I would approach it, which yeah. is just being patient, being flexible, but uh, yeah, applauding investors who have the ability to self-reflect like that. He closed by saying, I don't want to end up with a high turnover rate buying and selling companies every few years, as that would not be in line with true investing. Yet, I don't want a portfolio of companies I'm embarrassed to own. You know, I think there might be something to be said here at the end, Emily, about when we're in our 20s, especially, let's say, early 20s versus the advanced age of 28, we might be changing our worldview faster than when we get to be, let's say, 32 or 42 or 72. I don't think that's always true for everybody, but it may well be that as younger people, we go through more rapid changes in terms of the education we're getting and early experiences might be shifting how we think. You're closer to those ages, Emily, than I am. But I want to say that more than anything, if, if Brett, as we just spoke to with Jeff Fisher's advice, if Brett is simply saving on a regular basis and then adding either to companies he does still believe in in his portfolio or just buying new ones, there is not necessarily a compulsion to sell. In fact, I think most people would do better to build and grow the number of stocks in their portfolio versus having some small fixed numbers. So, I don't think there's a need to sell, even if your ideas or your worldview is changing faster than you think your money should. I love that. And personally for myself, you know, going through the pandemic, I have a number of businesses that I purchased that have been somewhat of duds. <laughs> and I have not sold a single one from my portfolio. And and going to Brett's point about holding businesses that, you know, he could potentially be embarrassed about being invested in. Yeah, I would never word. feel yeah. embarrassed about an investment. And I've made some bad investments because all of those are incredible learning opportunities for myself. So I see them in my portfolio and I don't feel shame about the business that I recommended or picked that's down, you know, 80% versus the market. I reflect on what led me to that decision and it's always a learning opportunity. And so I, I see them as winners for my portfolio, which is, you know, great. But the losers in my portfolio are winners in a cognitive sense. So I, I would just encourage anybody to, you know, not feel shame in whatever their investing journey is. I mean, nobody is perfect. Nobody is perfect. So owning and understanding mis quote unquote mistakes that are made or businesses that maybe don't live up to that future um, and taking them as they are at face value, I think is just so important for, you know, always pushing yourself to learn and, and feel pride. And we love that you care that much, Brad, and think that hard. That bodes really well for your future. By the way, Nobody necessarily knows what's in your portfolio. That that shame or embarrassment, you you only get it if you share it out with others. But uh, I do that on a regular basis. I think it's actually therapeutic. But you make your own calls there. Emily, thank you for that wisdom. Let's move on to Rule Breaker Mailbag Item number 5. And Emily, please stay with me. In fact, stay with me the rest of the show, if you will. If you'll have me, I'd love to. Done. And you and I are going to invite in our friend, Robert Brokamp. Bro, how you doing? So great. How are you, David? Doing really well. I asked Emily this question. She feels, well, some of her body language suggested she didn't think she nailed her answer to this question. Yeah, well, mostly because I didn't realize what day it was. Um, I did not realize what season it was. Well, that's a whole separate topic, and it's just like, <laughs> when does summer start? And some people say astronomically on the 21st, summer solstice. But then some people say meteorologically on the 1st of June. And that's a separate thing. Here's the question, bro. Give us a quick snapshot of a summer moment that you've had thus far, good, bad, or neutral? Uh, it was one of the best moments of my life, I would say, because my oldest daughter got married in Rome. Oh, my gosh. I did not know. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you so very much. Uh, it was beautiful. Um, it was expensive. And when you do a destination wedding, not so many people can come as you would like. But for those of us who showed up, it was a wedding to remember. And was this an Italian gentleman that she married? No. Absolutely no, not. No, she this just wanted to make it wedding. as difficult as possible. So <laughs> they love travel. And just a, a, actually a fellow she met at Catholic University where she went to college, my alma mater. Yep. Um, right here in Washington, D.C. And they just wanted to do it at a rooftop looking over the Vatican. And oh it was gorgeous. My God. That is good. Thank you for sharing that. Emily, that was a better answer than your. That hot was. Texas that answer. was. I, I, I liked your hot Texas <laughs> answer until I heard bro. 
All right, let's go on to this question from Charles Anthony, my new friend, because I met Charles Anthony at a supper last week. I had the honor of speaking to a supper for the Institute for Responsible Citizenship, a bunch of guys. It's all guys, this particular institute, but they come in every summer as interns and experience Washington, D.C. over two summers. And Charles Anthony was one of them at the supper. And you talk about a bright guy who raised his hand with a number of questions. I couldn't answer them all, and that's why he wrote me for this mailbag. I said, hey, just send it for the mailbag. But um, I love his story, as you'll shortly hear. It's not long here, but what he's done so far at the age of 22, pretty impressive. So let's go. Rule breaker, mailbag item number five. Hello, Mr. Gardner. Yep, he's the only one. You guys don't call me Mr. Gardner, do you? <laughs> no. Emily, you're 28. I'm 57. Am uh, I Mr. Gardner? I'm tempted to call you Professor Gardner. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> my you. investing journey has very much been colored by your expertise. That is very, very kind, and I'm definitely not a professor, but thank you. Hello, Mr. Gardner. I did want to ask you a few more questions about investing. So, right now, Charles Anthony writes, I have a total of $30,000 saved, with 12000 of it being investments. He says, five in my Roth IRA, seven in my trading account, both with Merrill Edge. I also have five k in a savings account with Wells Fargo, and the rest is in checking accounts. Okay, full stop. He hasn't asked this question there, but any impressions that either you get from this pretty remarkable 22-year-old? So, he's got cash on the side, he's got that emergency fund already started, and he's already starting to save for his retirement. And definitely, for most people when they are younger, maybe slightly you know, starting out in their career, lower income, the Roth is definitely the way to go. Okay. Emily, did you, at the age of 22, had you already put away $30,000 in these different ways with stocks? Maybe even more, but don't say that. Definitely not. Money (laughs) still does burn a hole in my pocket, although now I like to buy stocks instead of stuff. We like that about you. But I just remind you know everybody, you have to live life, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I assure you, he is. In fact, the Institute for Responsible Citizenship is a real honor, and these are people who um, are remarkable. And he's clearly one of them from the class of 2025 for North Carolina A&T. Anyway, let's go on with his simple question. Right now, I'm, I'm aiming this at you, bro. Right now, he says, my Roth money is simply cash, since I didn't know where to invest it. In my brokerage account, I currently hold Google, Amazon, Disney, Microsoft, Tesla, Nike, Spider 500 ETFs, VOO, that's the only ticker symbol I don't recognize. That Vanguard. is the, the Vanguard 500. So he's got two different uh, S&P 500 ETFs, which is interesting. That is interesting. And the last one he mentions, and I believe this is Wells Fargo Corporation, WFC, which he notes overall his brokerage account is up 9.66% for the year. Another observation I'll make a little bit later. His question, friends, how should I invest the cash in my Roth? Let's start with you, bro. So, the overall principle here is this. The Roth is a great account because it's a tax-free account, right? As long as you follow the rules, which is it has to be open for at least five years and you have to be 59 and a half when you take out the money. There's some exceptions, but mostly you want to leave it alone for retirement. It's a great account because you don't pay taxes on the capital gains, on the dividends, or the withdrawals. Because it's the tax-free account, it's the one you want to grow the most. So, ideally, you put in the investments that you think have the most growth potential. Now, it's not always easy to predict which investments are going to have the highest returns. Hopefully, uh, after years of experience, you'll figure that out. Um, but you want to put in the things that you think have the most growth potential. Now, he's going to want to have a mostly stock portfolio as he gets older, and then maybe tail down risk a little bit as he gets closer to retirement. For, but for the listeners who have more diversified portfolios, like bonds and cash and maybe more stodgier stocks, like it's easier for them, I think, to say, all right, I want to save the Roth for the things that I think really have the best potential. Definitely not the cash, definitely not the bonds, definitely not the stodgier stocks. Emily, looking over his brokerage account where he mentions the number of holdings, he's got about eight or nine stocks or overall investments. What would you do with that if you were adding to it? Yeah, it's a great start. Um, but these are businesses that are all very well established businesses, which again is a great start when you talk about the types of businesses that are foundational in a portfolio, which is the term that we use in Stock Advisor, right? The first businesses that virtually every investor can be interested in buying as as great examples of you know 
basically U.S.-based innovation, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, all great businesses. But you know, this is a relatively young investor who has a very long time horizon, and there's a lot of great growth opportunities that are maybe not represented in that brokerage account right now. Now, of course, every person is different, and what interests one may not interest another. But to Bro's point, a Roth account could be a great place to consider adding some growthier style investment. So businesses that are maybe a bit riskier, but have higher top-line growth potential that are innovative or unique in some sort of way. So I would consider that. I will add the caveat that while Bro had a wonderfully 100% accurate answer in terms of the quantitative approach to investing in a Roth account, I will just also highlight that there's an emotional element that I think comes into um, investing savings that are earmarked for retirement. And I can speak for myself as a relatively young investor who likes to invest in growth style companies. My IRA is entirely in a total stock market index fund. Okay. Because I know myself well enough to know that if I saw my retirement funds fluctuating really dramatically, that could keep me up at night. So I'm giving up some of those nice tax advantages by not holding my growthier style investments in my retirement accounts. But I like to think that I'm saving myself emotional turmoil in the process. And for my own part, I don't think I've barely ever owned any fund at all, and I tend to prefer all stocks all the time. So it's just a reminder that everybody has different approaches here. I will say our full 401k, I think I'm just invested in our fund because I'm like, I have enough other stocks, so I'll just keep doing that. Really appreciate you both sharing those perspectives. Robert, how much can people max out their Roth IRA with these days? I heard you on the has to be five years held at least, 59 and a half, et cetera. Can you just give quick basics? I was getting a number of questions at the supper from the young men of the Institute, and I found myself a little bit ill-equipped to speak directly to this. I think a lot of people need to know this. Yeah, so it, this year, 2023, it's $6,500. 6,500 Pocorobas. That's right. And you have to earn that much first. So, you know, if you did a, if you're a student and you're summer job only earned you 3000 that's the amount you can put in. Um, and then it's another 1000 if you'll be 50 or older by December 31st. And I'll point out here also, and it's something I've done with my kids, and maybe you have too, David, is that once your kids start doing summer jobs, you can open the I, Roth IRA for them. Hmm. And the money doesn't have to come from them. So I've opened up Roth IRAs for our kids and actually funded it myself just to get them going. Has it worked? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's inspiring to have a parent lean in and say, hey, I'm getting you going. Maybe some matching, a little bit of gamesmanship there, but just getting them in touch. One thing that Charles Anthony's doing is I think he's buying companies that he knows, that he can connect with. I think most people who are 22 can connect in some way, shape, or form with Disney, certainly with Amazon, possibly Tesla, a lot of people wearing Nikes, etc. So I feel as if we've got a guy who's found really good brands of companies that he recognizes and that I think are going to be around in 10 plus years, probably profiting at that point, at least I hope. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful consumer facing portfolio. And to your point, bro, um, you know, I got started investing by a Roth IRA, actually. A very similar methodology. I got a job at Starbucks. My mom said she would match uh, my contributions one Love for it. one. And I put mine in a very risky biotech fund, and my mom put hers in a you know, very reasonable index fund. Um, so, a great way to get kids started. Yeah, that's, that, that's what we did. So, we, we set them up with index funds, both U.S. international, small, small cap, large cap. But then, using actually Stock Advisor, we let them see what were the picks, and they picked the companies that they're interested in. And every once in a while, you'll hear them say, like, okay, what did Tesla do? What did Target do? What did Starbucks do? Well, I suppose we should go on to our final mailbag. Although, again, having just befriended Charles Anthony here in the last week or so, I feel like maybe there's one or two more things that we could add into the story. So, bro and Emily, let me just restate the start of his question again. This is a young man with $30,000 saved, 12000 of it in investments, 5000 in a savings account, the rest in checking accounts. I'm not sure, bro, if you would reallocate in any way, shape, or form or thoughts there, but it could even be, what about the next $1,000 or the next $30,000? Your thoughts, then Emily's, then we'll move on. I just have a thought about dividends, right? So, he has some dividend payers in his brokerage account, which is great, except if you hold them in your brokerage account, you have to pay taxes on them each and every year, even if you reinvest them. And if he's going to hold these for years, if not decades, okay. he's going to have to pay a lot of taxes over the years. So, I would... I would say if he's going to think of investing in dividend payers in the future, try to keep those in his tax advantage retirement accounts. Whereas if you 
buy a stock that doesn't pay a dividend, you don't pay any taxes. It has built-in tax advantages until you sell it, and then you pay long-term capital gains rates, which are lower. So that's just an, another thought on what they call asset location. Keep dividend payers in tax-advantaged accounts. And I'll, I'll come in with the emotional response, which is, you know, um, this is a 22-year-old in a very enviable position who now has the wonderful challenge of determining where are his priorities in life. A fair amount of that money hmm. is held in a checking account, and that's fine. Maybe that money is earmarked for a trip to Rome, uh, right? Maybe that money is is prioritized elsewhere. But if it's being saved, yeah, where do you want to put it? Put it in a Roth IRA, right? Max out those contributions, or maybe you put it in a brokerage account because you're going to use that money at some point in the future. I mean, there's just great questions about priorities that are risen by the fact that he has saved so much money. Yeah. Good job overall. Good job. Totally. And I'll just add as an addendum, I love that he knows he's up 9.66% for this year. You know I love the scoreboard. I love the scorekeepers. I love, Charles Anthony, that you're taking the time to score yourself and know how you're doing. So, um, all good thoughts from us to you. Keep up the great work. Full on. All right, and now our final mailbag item, and we insist at this point, yes, Emily, you must stay with us. We're having too much fun. Uh, I am thinking of you for this one, though, bro, because we're about to go dripping, and we're, we're going to be talking dividends a little bit here with Justin D. Dear, dear fools, Justin starts, greetings from a subscriber whose Gardner-Kretzmann continuum score is .975 and whose sleep number is 20. Now, before I go on, full stop, Justin has thrown down a couple of terms near and dear to my heart on this podcast. Not everybody knows what we're talking about. So, real quick, what he's just expressed is that whatever his age, let's just say Justin is 32, that means his GKC score of .975 means that 98% of his age is how many stocks he owns. So, if he's 32, He's got about 30 stocks in his portfolio. That's what he's communicating through that. And then his sleep number, well, that's what I call the amount that you would be willing to allow your largest holding to grow to as a percentage of your overall portfolio. So he's also conveyed very quickly. See how efficient these terms are? In one sentence, he's given us also that he wouldn't allow a stock to grow to more than one-fifth of his portfolio. Now, with that said, let's get to his actual situation. Bro, in retirement, Justin writes, I plan to supplement my Social Security, TSP. Is that Thrift Savings Plan? Yes, that is the defined contribution plan for federal employees. It's like their 401k and is the biggest 401k plan in the United States. Thank you. And we break down our acronyms on this show, so thank you, bro. And federal pension with a 3 to 5% monthly withdrawal. He's planning to supplement these things with a 3 to 5% monthly withdrawal from his stock advisor portfolio, only about 15% of my current holdings pay dividends, and I have activated dividend reinvestment plans for all of them. Of course, dividend reinvestment plans, the acronym is DRIP, and we'll be using that once or twice more here as I finish out his question. So, Justin's asking, still somewhat theoretically, he says, retirement is a way off. Once retired, I have a planned algorithm of monthly withdrawals from this account, starting with getting fully rid of the lowest-performing stocks, interspersed with shaving outsized holdings down to 10% of my overall portfolio, basically on repeat. So, he's setting up his own artificial intelligence, he's got his own algorithms in place, and that's what he's doing. Again, he's getting fully rid of his lowest performers, and he's shaving down his biggest, best performers from that sleep number of 20 to a sleep number of 10. And he says, rinse and repeat from that point. My question is one of realizing maximum gain from my dividend-paying holdings. In retirement, do I keep my drips activated as I withdraw from holdings based on the above algorithm? This is why we save this one to the end, bro, because we're getting a little technical here. Yeah, I yeah. see you putting on your thinking cap, which looks a little bit like a jester cap here at Felicity. I know it's unusual because usually I'm not thinking too much. So, <laughs> Well said. Do I keep my drips activated as I withdraw from holdings based on the above algorithm, or is it more tax efficient to switch all of my dividend reinvestment plans off and use those dividend payments as a portion of what I plan to withdraw monthly? Most of my dividend-paying holdings are somewhat in the middle of the pack in terms of my winners and losers, so 
I likely will be withdrawing from them last. Before I read the last sentence or two, bro, do you feel like you have enough information right now to process the algorithms to give us the correct answer? <laughs> I have enough to give some thoughts on the answer. How's that? That's good. Are they thoughts that you think would be more true than not and more helpful than not? I certainly hope they'll be more helpful. Than I just that. wanted to make sure because you seemed a little ambiguous with your previous statement. Okay, good. So we're going to finish this one out then with a win. Justin says, Many thanks for indulging. There could be only a marginal difference between these two strategies, but I'd love to know which option could maximize my gains. Keep up the invaluable work. Signed, Justin, letter D. Bro. So I'm going to start with a couple of retirement planning principles. And these are really in terms of once you reach retirement, you might have a few accounts. You have a taxable brokerage account, maybe a traditional tax deferred account, and maybe a tax-free Roth. And you have this question, all right, which accounts do I tap first? And here's the conventional wisdom, which many studies have shown. It doesn't apply to everyone, but it's, it's a good starting point. Okay. And that is you drain your taxable accounts first, then your traditional tax deferred, and leave your Roth for last. So, if you decide to follow that step, that progression, yep. then the dividend payers that you have in the accounts that you're not going to tap for years, if maybe, and maybe not even decades, keep reinvesting those dividends. Now, here's the other principle. Any money you expect from your portfolio for the next three to five years should be out of the stock market. Cash, CDs, short-term bonds, treasuries, stuff like that. In retirement. In retirement. And so, if you have dividend payers in the accounts that you plan to tap in the next few years, one way to keep replenishing what we call our income cushion, this, this safe pile of cash, is to turn off dividend reinvestment and just let that accumulate as cash so you don't have to sell so much every year. So, to sum it up, it really depends on where the account... Where the investment is, in which account, and how long it is until you plan to tap that account. For years, he was one half of the superhero duo for Motley Fool Answers. For years before that, starting with Rule Your Retirement, Robert, you've been bringing these kinds of insights to anybody who would be willing to ask, in some cases, as complicated sometimes a question as Justin might. Arguably one that isn't going to kill it for our podcast ratings. I mean, for this particular question, we're getting pretty technical. But, Robert, thank you for that thought, and thank you for all the remarkable work that you do here at The Fool. Emily, listening to this situation and thinking of that far-flung, hypothetical idea of retirement, what thought comes to your mind? Yeah, I love this question because, conceptually, you know, you think about buying dividend companies and eventually getting to the point where you're, in part, living off the dividends, right? You're literally getting money back from the companies for the money that you've put into the business. But going back to the point that we were talking about earlier, David, around you know, flexibility in, in our companies and our mindset, I, I think it's worth reiterating that depending on how far away retirement is, buying a dividend-paying company today does not guarantee that it will be a dividend-paying company by the time you reach retirement. I'm thinking about uh, businesses that had long histories of paying, paying dividends, GE being a great example. Um, even more recently, companies like Disney, which had impressive dividend histories that recently got cut as their business changed. I mean, be flexible with your investments, too, and just recognize that if you're buying dividend companies as part of a retirement plan, depending on how far away that is, the business you're buying today could be very different than hmm. the one that exists when you retire. And it's also true, the other side of the coin, Robert, that some companies that don't pay dividends today all of a sudden might, as they mature, start paying dividends. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I, I would like to point out that Justin is doing well, and that is, as a retiree, you have to decide what to sell. And one way to rebalance hmm. your portfolio is sell the things that have become overweight. And that's what he's doing, right? If he says, if a, a single stock is getting too big, I'm going to cut back on that. But it could also be asset classes. It could be stocks versus bonds versus cash. It could be large cap versus small cap, something like that. Um, and then if you're still working, you kind of do a different strategy. And that is, if you have parts of your portfolio that are underweighted, all your future contributions to your IRAs and 401ks, go into those asset classes. So it's a great way to strategically manage the flow in and out of your portfolio as a way to rebalance it. Thank you, and thank you both. And in fact, rarely do I do ads on this podcast anymore. I used to read, you know, like we all did, used to read for Harry's, get a better shave, or 
Rocket Mortgage for like a solid year and a half or yes. so. And I, I think see Warby Parking, Parker Glasses maybe there we were go. there yeah. for a while. So, so, but I'm going to do an ad for us here because both Robert and Emily, you fulfill important functions here at The Fool. And I just bet after getting to hear from you for the better part of 20 or 30 minutes, a few people listening at least might be like, how could I get some more of that? So, starting with you, Robert. What can I sign up for or do at The Motley Fool that will get me in touch with you so I can ask you my complicated algorithmic question? So I'm the lead advisor for The Fool's uh, Rule Your Retirement Service, which just turned 19 years old. You know, when I Google the phrase, Rule Your Retirement, guess what pops up number one on the internet? Weird Al. Nope. Oh, that's too bad. You in our service, (laughs) but I like the answer. And uh, just think. Not not only is it about ruling your retirement, but you rule the internet on that phrase. <laughs> I'm very I'm very proud, I guess. <laughs> so not only do you when you sign up for rule your retirement, really any of the full services, you not only get that service, but you also get access to something called Full Live, which airs every uh, day, every weekday, and I do two shows on that. And both of them, I accept any any sort of financial planning, retirement planning questions. Love it, Emily. Yes. Um, well, the flagship service here at The Molly Fool is a great place to start. That's Stock Advisor. And David, I work on a team that uses the investing methodology that you put forth for your kind of rule breaker, stock picking mindset, if I will, to help find great companies for average investors and in Stock Advisor. And we have stock picks that range anywhere from companies like Amazon, Google, Apple, to smaller businesses that are more growth-oriented, unprofitable. So really a little bit of something for everybody in a kind of uh, choose-your-own-adventure, if you will, uh, stock picking service. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Emily. Emily, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you I'm not asking you to pound the table for anything, but what's a stock that's come across your transom recently that you like? You're not here, again, pounding the table for it. It's not the only stock people should buy, but what are you looking at right now? Well, I I like to go back to that um, methodology that you mentioned, which is make sure your portfolio looks like your best vision for the future. I probably butchered it a little bit, but one business that I think has made some recent strides in that direction is Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Um, This is a large pharmaceutical company that has uh, commercialized treatments for cystic fibrosis. But they recently, over this past weekend, reported some interesting results from their phase two trials for the treatment of type 1 diabetes. And it's a small group, um, only six participants in that trial, but two of the six people who are participating are now insulin independent. So the Independent Monitoring Committee recommended that they move to stage three trials. So we'll see if the FDA agrees. But regardless, this is a company that is investing a lot of money into making substantial improvements on treatments for people from type 1 diabetes all the way to pain management, to kidney disease, to cystic fibrosis. Love it. It is a reminder, and this is how we'll close it this week, to always be playing the long game. I think about some of the questions and conversations we've had, and we're talking back to 15 years ago or more, which is about the time that Vertex Pharmaceuticals came to Rule Breakers, and it came from our colleague Charlie Travers. And Today, it's an $88 billion company, and dear listener, in case you thought you missed it, you rarely do, if ever, miss it. Um, so many of us, I think, with that backward-looking, oh, I didn't have it, think I should have bought it, but I never will now that I didn't back then. But uh, what I appreciate about what you've just done, Emily, is you've reminded us it's all about what comes next. And often, the winners keep on winning. Not every time, but often. And so, thank you for that fun. Emily, bro, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Well, two show notes at close. The first is that next week's podcast is all about financial freedom. And here's the question I have for you, and it's a write-in, i.e. it's kind of a mailbag episode next week. It's going to be much better if you take a moment right now just to send me a few sentences, a thought. Our email address is rbi at fool.com. I mentioned this last week. This is the last time I'll mention it. But for next week's show, here's my question for you. What did you do Dear fellow fool and listener, what did you do in the past year to create more financial freedom for yourself or for others? And how do you measure that? One more time, what did you do in the past year to create more financial freedom for yourself or for others? And how do you measure that? Well, that's going to form the bedrock for next week's Freedom Week. It's Independence Day here in the United States. Financial Freedom Week for next week's podcast. Now, we're recording next week's podcast tomorrow, meaning send me your reply 
right away. I would love to hear from you. RBI at fool.com is our address to feature you on my Financial Freedom Show next week. Thank you in advance. And my final closing note, one of our authors in August who's already said yes is Arthur Brooks. Many will know Arthur from many past associations, one prominent one of which, of course, is that he writes for The Atlantic, their happiness column. He wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called Love Your Enemies. I first heard of it from a fellow fool, Jason Moore, longtime listener to this podcast and fool correspondent. Jason, thank you for that recommendation. I read it in the past year, so I could call it sort of my book of the year over the past year or so. It's about the great importance of treating everybody with respect, especially thinking today in the United States of America, people who may not agree with you. We're told, many of us, through many different traditions, to love our enemies. Brooks's message, his intelligence, his storytelling, all of them will be on display for our Authors in August conversation. I'm very excited to welcome Arthur Brooks to this podcast in August and a few others that we'll reveal over the course of July. But there's some reading for you to get started. Arthur Brooks's 2019 book, Love Your Enemies. In the meantime, financial freedom, drop me a note and have a lovely week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.